This episode is the first one we've done outdoors and it's a real nature experience. You'll feel like you're walking through the woods as you listen to the birds chirping in the background. And you'll hear that Richard really opens up in the second half of this chat and then you'll start to see his passion, knowledge and love for all things wood start shining through. Enjoy. And talking. I can't stress how important it is talking to people. Friendship's important when you're starting a business, I think. White men, you have a lot of perks in life. There's a lot of um, privileges. And I love explaining that story. I love telling people where that tree's come from, how we got it down, why it came down. But that's old growth forest. It's not plantation of it. That's, you know, it's been growing in Siberia for 400 years. Amazing African hardwoods, and you look at it and you're like, How the hell are you getting that yeah. from a sustainable or ethical source? Yeah, you can't be eating the hoo I have. It was part of the wilding pine initiation of being a forest boy. So the helicopter's hanging above with this long, long line, and we're frantically trying to repack these slabs. And it's like, Shit, this is costing us a fortune. <laughs> yeah. Eight o'clock, a box of beers come out in the morning and, and a massive bag of oysters, and you're like, oh, what a breakfast. Yeah. It's an incredible process how a tree grows yeah. um, and how it heals itself and, and communicates, you know. They're an amazing uh, biological machine. So, yeah, Richard, do you want to take us back to the beginning? Um, when, where are you from and, and how you came here? Right, yeah, so I grew up in London, um, went to university there and um, got through the first two years and realised it wasn't for me, so I yeah, went into tree work. Much to um, a lot of people's <laughs> sort of questioning, they were wondering what I was doing in my life and um, yeah, like picked it family. up. Yeah, yeah, family, mum, dad, yeah, <laughs> wondering what the hell, but loved it. Got on, under my skin and just um, really enjoyed the climbing aspect of it. Um, I knew I could travel with it, so spent about about two years in London working away as an arborist getting my tickets and qualifications and then moved over to New Zealand back in 2015 I had cousins here which was pretty lucky they kind of set me up with a place to stay and um, right. show me around a wee bit got into the wilding pine contracts and yeah did a lot of work for Doc oh, yeah. which was awesome so we're getting around the back country and um, seeing parts of the area that you wouldn't normally see what is the wilding pine thing? the wilding pine contract it's um, yeah, a program run by Doc to eradicate all the wilding pines in New Zealand yeah. um, government program trying to eradicate non-natives basically yeah yeah um great fun great set of guys um yeah really love those days but yeah then went back into arboriculture started climbing again just to work towards residency and um yeah spent five years working towards that and finally got it in december 21 nice um and so when that awesome day came through i um yeah set up the business time to spread your own wings yeah exactly yeah Yeah. it was a long time coming yeah spent a lot of time just um looking at timber and and saving logs milling them up drying them and um sitting on a huge stock of of wood and um, waiting for the day i could uh, finally start the business yeah yeah so um yeah now a year into it pretty much and yeah, happy with the way it's gone so far. Probably five years in the planning. But yeah. yeah, which might have been a blessing in disguise, yeah. you know, giving me time to build that, that amount of stock, um, you know, because timber takes a long time to dry. So 
you know, gave me the chance to really sort of get ahead in the game. Yeah. So you talked about the wilding pines and climbing trees in general. It's a pretty yeah. gnarly um, pastime. Well, yeah. Not pastime. Um, Profession. Profession. Yeah. 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 It's it's a yeah. It takes it out of you, but it's um. You must be in some scary situations. Yeah. Try not to be, but you kind of <laughs> naturally, you know, every now and again, you get a tree that definitely makes you um, double take. But I guess that's why it sort of attracts young fellas into the industry. Yeah. A little bit of, of risk. And yeah. A little risk, and yeah, sort of the sharp edge of, of working. And um, you know, every tree is different, so it always throws new problems at you. But I think um, you know, you get into your thirties, you start wondering, right? You know, you can't do it for life. Yeah. It's certainly pretty cruel on the body. So I thought I'd start a sawmill business which actually turns out to be even worse on your on your back and your <laughs> and your joints so um yeah but you got to love it i guess probably in the early days because you're hustling so much and yeah uh, it's interesting actually this first year well, i've been working pretty hard but being very conscious of actually taking the time for myself because yeah. for three years prior to residency um i was working every day under the sun just trying to you know get as much done for myself outside of my work hours yeah um and that really took its toll i think on my mental health and um and also physical you know i'll get to Sunday afternoon I've been you know working away for two or three days by myself and then you go back to work on Monday it's like you, you yeah. genuinely need a break after yeah. all that I fell um, into the same trap myself you, you just take everything on because you're so confident in yourself you feel you can do anything right and it slowly just chips away. away at you yeah you, yeah, you sort of learn through your mistakes I guess yeah that's definitely true um, yeah talking about gnarly situations I, I love watching those videos of arborists they've got a house that has to fall in, right between two houses right. and <laughs> yeah. yeah some very famous videos of that yeah. yeah you don't see the ones where they go wrong I reckon yeah well those <laughs> ones are cool too yeah yeah <laughs> <Watch>. totally <laughs> yeah I guess it's all mitigating risk um, yeah. especially um, tree work around Queenstown you've got a lot of multi-million dollar builds yeah um, and so you're constantly working around things that are just going to cost a fortune to fix if you do break it yeah so um yeah, just managing that risk, I guess, um, taking things slow. Can you predict exactly where your tree is going to fall? Yeah, you could. Yeah, you have a pretty good idea looking at the balance and the weight of where a tree's leaning um, and how far you can swing it round. Let's um, say one of those videos. If you had, mm, if you were asked to do, you know the mm, ones I'm talking about. Yeah, right between, between a house and a shed, or a, yeah. yeah, yeah. It really depends on the tree, the weight, even the wind that yeah. day. You know, yeah. You, know, you can book a job in for a month's time and then get there and it's howling a gale, and you, you need a real calm day to get the rigging done or yeah. or fed in. Yeah, it's um, yeah, a lot of variables and game of risk. Yeah, there's something about what you do. I'm, yeah, I remember felling trees with my dad when I was young for that, and I, I just loved mm. it. I just mm. loved working the chainsaw and just the power of a big massive tree falling yeah doesn't get boring yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's certainly something that, that um, attracts a lot of people you know it's um working outdoors is a big um big attraction you know changing scenes every day and yeah getting to different places and meeting different people yeah that's good know. for you yeah it's yeah. healthy healthy work work-life balance you're sort of always on the move and yeah yeah I, I love the client contact you know every day you're meeting someone different with different objectives for what they've got with their trees or yeah yeah different ideas and some of them are hilarious especially in new zealand when you've got a good view behind a tree you know you yeah. get to a job and the fella wants it in half or it's quite common to be honest what do you mean wants it in half oh uh, you know you have a big pine tree in front of um your house that blocking a view of the lake and the mountains or yeah and he comes along he's like right i want you to prune it down to you know pretty much the stump and you're like oh god yeah this is an 80 year old pine tree or you know something yeah you know worthy of keeping and uh yeah you try and talk them around but it's not, not often the case it comes right so it is frustrating in this town i'd say with um the quality of a boriculture you're not really given the scope to do it well often yeah. people want the view or the sunlight back and um i know certainly in the uk and around parts of europe people are very conscious of trees and um, there's a lot of laws that um 
but stipulate how much you can take off a tree or how much you can prune it, you know? And that's in the tree's benefit. I suppose New Zealand is spoiled. It's got so much trees and so much yeah. native. And very little legislation to hold people back from just taking out, you know, old totras or old yeah. oaks or walnuts. or. I know yeah. Ireland used to be a, a rainforest way back in history and now there's no trees there right no natives I had no idea about that yeah I'd say it'd be very much like the Fjordlands then I'd imagine being a sort of wild west coast with a lot of weather hitting it yeah Yeah. I think so because I had the climate for it I just had so much rain you know yeah interesting Um, and they're all gone now so it's such a shame Mm. Um, and that's probably similar in the UK I suppose that's why the laws are so stringent because there's so little left they're really trying to protect them right so it makes you question really where it's going in New Zealand you know we're still a young country Still with a lot of tree stock. Yeah, massive. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting from a sawmilling point of view, the legislation being put in place to protect natives. It's, um, it's incredible. It's really good, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, sourcing native is incredibly hard. Rimu, Totra, yeah. Kari. Yeah. You can't get hold of it very easily because those laws are in place. Yeah, I'm a sort of fan of that. Yeah, yeah. so am I. Yeah. Even when it's difficult for me to get the material as yeah, a furniture yeah. maker. Yeah. But I still like that they're conserving yeah. it. It's really good. Makes the hunt good. You know? <laughs> it's the funnest part of the job, I reckon. Yeah. Oh, so before we go too far, um, maybe give us, for the listeners who don't know, a description of uh, your company, Fokatipu Yeah, Fokatipu Timber. timber. So it's basically a, a sawmilling business um, that's trying to gather as, as much timber from the local region as possible and reuse it. Now, I'm probably not in the best area for this business to thrive because a lot of the timber we have here is brought over, has been brought over by um, the pioneers uh, back in the 1800s. So a lot of willow, poplar pine, Douglas fir, not particularly choice timbers. Um, they're all quite fast growing and um, and easy to cultivate, or easy to propagate, I should say. Um, so the tree stock is not the best in terms of what's around in New Zealand, certainly compared to North America and, and Europe. Yeah. But um, it makes the hunt harder, which is good. So, you know, I'm constantly after um, large oaks and walnuts that come down in high winds or um, because development going on, it's quite a common one nowadays. Um, yeah. So it's just sort of getting a second lease of life for um, for trees in the area that normally cut into firewood or um, mulched into, into yeah. wood chips. There's a bit of a trend with slabs at the moment that maybe is good for your industry. And it's instead of those that timber that might have been firewood, at least now it's getting a second use in life. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think um, slabbing is sort of, certainly seen a revival in the past 10 years or uh, not even a revival it's sort of quite new in in the milling scene in terms of timber but I think you speak to most of the joiners they're very fond of dimensional you know they they like working with it they don't want to you know slab's already a table almost Um, so when it you're takes dealing with their workload out, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think um, when you're working with a product that, um, or trying to make a product that's intricate, you know, you, you need um, thinner strips or thinner dimensions to work with. I mean, like you, you'd know when yeah. you're doing your intricate designs, you'd. Yeah, yeah, um, I don't know where I stand upon it because the slab is in its natural form. The beauty mm. is already there, you know. Yeah, right. I like to celebrate the beauty of nature, but yeah, the, the reason they might like dimensional timber is because it's like engineered and there's less chance of movement. And yeah, it's more controlled, I guess. Mm. but it's moving further and further away from the natural product yeah the natural shape yeah so I guess I'm trying to do both really is sort of have that stock of of the slabs um, but also have a good stock of dimensional timber yeah. for joiners yeah. in the region. But it's it's hard because you know you, you mill something 150 by 50 and they want you know 130 by 95 or you know what I mean. It, you could, it's hard to hold that amount of stock um, and hope it sells. Yeah. So a lot of the dimensional side of the business um, is milled to order because your business is so young. It's still finding its uh, perfect groove that it fits right. into. Yeah. 
And I'm not trying to be ICM or Miser 10, you yeah. know, I can't compete when I'm yeah. you know, churning out two before's or... And I don't think you want to. No, I don't, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I want to work on the more intricate species of timber out there. Well, like you were saying before, because trees are falling down and you're sort of picking them from here or there, it gives you quite a unique selection. And yeah, and you don't have much control over it, you yeah. know. There's not a huge stock to work with, so um, you know I'm pretty close with a lot of the um, arboriculture companies in town, and um, you know they let me know if there's cedars coming down, or uh, oaks, or native beech trees, whatever it will be, and they're pretty good at um, trying to talk the client around to, to reusing the timber. Mm. So often there's contra deals, you know, it's really hard to put a price on one tree in your back garden, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you can't do a cubic meter rate because uh, there's not enough of it. So you know you try and work out a deal that's best for the client and the arborist because I don't want to take his work. So yeah, it's often you know a bit of cash his way and then a couple of slabs towards the client in return for the log. It's a hard one. Yeah, you know, it's something I've learned along the way of um, doing all sorts of deals for timber. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you find yourself doing some pretty odd jobs in return for a few logs. But um, yeah, I, I guess it's sort of um, the nature of the beast, really. And I think I look over to the. The states and Canada where um, these sawmills who've been running for 30, 40 years and doing um, doing what I'm doing on a much larger scale, you know, they're often doing odd deals as well. So I know I'm not doing it wrong. If you yeah. know I, mean. I do look over there for inspiration, guidance really of how to run a business like this because there's not a blueprint to it. So that gives you a bit of reassurance that you're not crazy or you're not doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. but then at the same time, you do speak to some people who want 2,000 bucks for their walnut tree that's 40 years old and you know, yeah. it's not worth that. Yeah, you've yeah. got to, yeah, it's got to work for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also for the client. So yeah. it's, um, yeah. Some people have unrealistic expectations. Yeah. And, but that's fun. You know, it's sort of like w- we've always bartered over timber. Yeah. It's like putting the price on timber at the end of the day when I go to sell it. You know, there's no f- real formula. You can do a cubic meter rate, but sometimes, you know, it's taken me a huge amount of work to get cedars out of a gully to then mill up then it has a walnut or an oak tree to snap, you know. So it's, yeah. I find that hard. I love their little bit of bartering. Yeah, for me, the unusual <laughs> thing was the, the price would go up each time I come around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, inflation though now, you know. <laughs> Uh, funny yeah no I did enjoy it mm. um, yeah it's um, ha- yeah, it's a hard one to for me and, and now I'm going through all my stock and, and putting prices on them um, and being quite firm on it now yeah I think like you found with the cost of living in this town it's you've got to have your price and stick to it mm. um, I found over the years doing deals or selling slabs to builders and mates and you're sort of constantly undercutting yourself really yeah, and, and you got to realise, right? You've got a product. You've worked hard for it. It's dried. It's ready to go. There's nothing on the market like it because no one's gone to your length to try and imitate it. Um, yeah. You have to realise the value of your time as well. Yeah, and the time. Yeah, yeah. massively. It's Which, probably your most valuable asset. Yeah, God, you end up pouring hours into something that um, yeah. you don't really account for. You know, yeah, all the you're not running your business, all the marketing, all the online stuff. You wouldn't yeah. ever put down to a job or a slab. It's yeah. just. Um, and someone just sees a slab, but they don't realise you've been up the side of a mountain and getting yeah. your vehicle up there. And, yeah, the yeah. high airball. Yeah, and then climbing it. Yeah, taking transporting it, it. And then the deal with the customer, it's obviously the most taxing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially if I'm your customer. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the spelling of Fakatipu in Fakatipu Timber Company. Right. Explain. Uh, <laughs> A lot of contra- controversy over this one. Yeah, Especially it is. Especially with the older Kiwis. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with my auntie Lee, who will be listening to this, I hope. <laughs> um, I guess 
Coming from the UK, um, it's not my country, and I can see um, how New Zealand's trying to progress with the phonetic spellings of uh, Māori language and places and names. And so I'm quite keen to um, pay respect to that, mm. I guess, as an immigrant, someone who's not from this country, um, and I can see... Well, I'd like to hope that those names will be adopted later on down the line. And so I guess I'm just trying to get ahead of the curve. Yeah. It's certainly bit me in the arse a few times with um, clients when I send emails and, you know, the H comes up. <laughs> Why the hell are you, you know? But that's okay. I think it's worth... People are resistant to change. A little bit. Especially when they've lived in a place for so long and called it... Yeah. ...what they they have for Uh, so long. Yeah, and I suppose, especially when someone like me or you, Mm. who hasn't lived here for that amount of time, Mm. decides this is the way you want to spell it. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we've got less clout in their eyes. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I think... But for me, I see what New Zealand are doing with um, sort of the revival of Maori culture. Such Mm. a strong culture. Like, I mean, it's so celebrated when you look at the Mm. old... You know, the oh, um, yeah. And you compare it to anywhere else on, on earth that yeah. has a colonial history. I think it's... The rest of the world are jealous, I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah, you look at Australia with um, with the Aboriginals and what's gone on there and yeah. how they've been treated. It's horrific. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, like you say, it should be celebrated and embraced. I think it's part of what New Zealand is, you know? Yeah. And as an immigrant, you know, celebrate that, yeah. Yeah. Be part of it, you yeah. know? It's an interesting one, but um, I'd sort of stick to my guns on it, I guess. Yeah. It's your company. You set it up, so it has to be, make course. sense for you, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be changing it in 10 years' time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just, yeah, I've been through similar steps with you setting up my business. Um, uh, it's a massively energy-consuming thing to set mm. up and scale up a business on your own. And there's always a temptation for outside investment, um, but you've done it on your own terms. Uh, Tell us how important this is to you and some of the challenges you faced as a result. Yeah, I'd say having the time to build up that stock of timber really helped. Like I was saying, waiting for residency, waiting to start the company. Yeah. Um, that really um, allowed me to sort of naturally grow it without having to go to the banks and ask for a bunch of money um, for the sawmill, for the trucks, for chippers, all that. Um, Yeah. There's a few deals that came along through time. It's sort of, um, I guess, luck would pay its part there. You know, I found a Nissan Patrol that was going real cheap and a bugger all K's on it and made 15 grand off it. Um, <laughs> you know, and that got me the high ab. And I think little deals along the way, you know, it's um, has helped. The tractor cost me two grand from the local firewood merchant. You know, I think yeah. just luck and timing and talking. I can't stress how important it is talking to people yeah. and just having a yarn about anything, whether, you know, whether it be their life or their business or you know you get talking to people and, and suddenly you realize there's a lot of doors that open with that yeah. um and i notice people who are afraid of talking about their business and, and what they're doing because they're nervous that someone might catch on or i think it's the, it's the wrong approach to be honest yeah because i've had can't tell you how grateful i am to all the friends along the way who have helped um you know, for years I was calling mates every weekend being like, oh, yeah, you want a couple of hours spare for the sawmill? Yeah, it got to a point where I had no friends left. You know, they just didn't <laughs> want to hang out with me on the weekends because they knew you'd get worked. Um, Do you want to come around for a beer? Yeah, well... <laughs> the four hours yeah, work. <laughs> it'll be a warm beer by the time I drink it. Um, but no, I can't I can't thank those, those people enough. Um, they know who they are. Yeah. Um, and I think without them... I'll be a good couple of years behind. Yeah. So that I do, um, yeah, friendship's important when you're starting a business, I think. That you speaks do rely to, on the, to the community we're living in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of people who are keen to help and interested and, and everyone's learning. And I, I think with this particular business, it's quite an unusual one. You know, a lot of people don't really understand how it works or um, how you make money out of it, I guess. But um, yeah, they come around and they, they help out and often they go home with a slab or chopping boards or I don't know contra deals are quite important I think yeah. in this um, especially when you're starting a business 
um, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, sort of thing. Sort of thing, yeah. yeah. And there's certainly a, a few backs that need a scratch <laughs> to this day. But um, I'm sure you get around to that for sure. Yeah. Can you think of uh, one big setback and one big victory along the way that stands out? Finding the timber, I guess. I struggle with that. Sometimes I go two, three months without having a phone call about a log. Ah. Uh, you know, yeah. it's not like a plantation I'm pulling from. Yeah. Um, but that that makes it exciting. You know, I'm going further afield to find the right timber. You know, going down to Miller's Flat down in Etterick for elm logs. You know, going to the yeah. west coast for Totra, going to Stewart Island for Rimu and helicoptering it out. You know, you go to some ridiculous lengths to get the timber. Um, and I think, you know, that's probably the biggest setback. But as it turns out, it's also um, the biggest help because no one wants to go to that length all that work to then middle the timber then sit on it for two years before you got a, a sellable product you know everyone looks at that as a business model they're like oh god you know, <laughs> which is great because i don't have any competition yeah at the moment and you don't mind doing it oh, i don't mind. i love it you know yeah. it's the, that's the fun part of the job is finding that that timber yeah and then you know throughout the stages you bring it back to the yard and you mill it up and you see all the grain and you dry it out and then you work on it we'll see someone like yourself who works on it and then sends me a photo of the finished product it's like wow I don't do enough of that, you know. That's why I'm really um, wanting to push the business into that final product because um, it's important. That, yeah, and that's actually the, one of the most exciting parts of working with wood is seeing it all dressed up and oiled and looking the best it can. Because mm. um, I see the raw product at the moment, but it's a whole different industry, like you know. It's all the gear and the planers and the buzz saws and. Yeah. Oh, I look at it. And I, it puts me off in a, a weird way, but um, but I know I think that's the natural um, future of the business. I suppose you see the potential of mm. the tree. Um, at the moment, someone else is realising that potential. You're still part, a massive part of the journey. Yeah, yeah. So sort of building my website at the moment, and I think that's a big selling point is um, being able to um, talk to a client who wants a tree out for whatever reason, and being able to reuse that tree and, and turn it into a finished product. Like climb the tree, fell it, take it back to the yard, mill it, dry it, and then use it for table tabletops or headboards yeah. or desks i mean it's so much work but it's so much more satisfying to see that process happen yeah and see the timber get turned into firewood totally so. and then yeah you don't have any middlemen in it and you can just do the whole the whole sequence from start to finish and control all of it because yeah. i sell a, a lot of slabs to some people who just wreck them <laughs> some fellow was sanding a slab with a bloody angle grinder the other day on a pad sander and he, <laughs> he said he couldn't get it flat <laughs> no wonder <laughs> Yeah, that's just frustrating, and I'm like, why am I selling good timber to get people? I guess I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to who gets to work on it. Because yeah. as you know, I don't like selling it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're quite precious sometimes. Yeah. Because I suppose you put so much work into it and you've got a nice collection. Yeah, I hate seeing it go. Yeah. Yeah, my, la- my mates have a good laugh about it as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, say work's a little bit slow at the moment, and they're like, well, why don't you sell some slabs? <laughs> obviously not going to happen. I guess I'm sort of keeping it for that eventuality of turning the business into a sort of, fur- not furniture maker, that would be, um, you know, too arrogant to say, I guess, but just to do the finished product. What I don't want to do is sell all the dry stock and then get to a point in a year or two where I can't work on it myself. Yeah, and I suppose it's important to have a selection and a catalogue. Yeah. So you invite someone around to look at it, you've got nothing to show them. Yeah. Um, one setback and one victory along the way. Um, like, I'm trying to think a moment where you thought, fuck yeah, that's it, this is going to get things really going for me, you know? 
Oh, it's got to be the residency. It yeah. has to be. I think um, can't stress how um, important that was to get because it allows you then to do whatever you like. Before that, you're, you're tied to your employer um, on a visa. And I have to give a um, huge amount of credit to Tim from Tricky Trees because he really helped me set this business up. He was really helping with sourcing the timber from work when I was working with him. You know, mm. if there were cedar trees coming out, he, he was always happy to help, which um, which was great. Um but I needed, after four and a half years of working with him, I, I needed to, you know, get out, start my own thing. And so when the residency came through, that was just a moment. I was like, right, hit the ground running. I'm ready. I'll be waiting four years for it. So, yeah, yeah. I guess that um, that idea of being a migrant really sort of sat in where you, you don't have full control over your life. And it's a funny one because it, um, it's I a tough think, situation to be in. I remember. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, you know, putting it into perspective, as white men, you have a lot of perks in life. There's a lot of... Um, privileges mm. that you wouldn't even understand being white and being a male yeah. um, and I think you know it kind of it's the first time in my life um, where I've been hindered and it just puts it all into perspective and you sit there in, in line and you, you quietly wait for it because you know your problem's nowhere near as bad as a lot of people's in the world yeah. it's not a problem really you yeah. just want to carry on with your life and I think it, yeah makes you realise a lot of people have got it pretty tough um, yeah, that small little uh, hindrance on your freedom makes maybe you realise how tough it might be for others. Yeah, yeah. I think of all the other migrants just trying to trying to get into countries that um, just to survive, running away from war or famine. And yeah, yeah, that yeah that gave me a lot of perspective. Yeah, it makes so you realise we have it pretty easy, really. Yeah, we should be grateful. Yeah, very yeah. grateful for New Zealand of all the countries. Yeah. 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 Talk, talk to me about New Zealand when you came here and how you were received pretty well i guess i mean i can't complain with it all i was quite surprised the amount of international people in queenstown that you know that kind of shocked me yeah um i don't know why it's probably quite naive considering you know how, how well known it is around the globe but i guess with kiwis the salt of the earth sort of people and they um takes a while for for them to respect you i guess being a pom prove yourself <laughs> Yeah, kind of. Being Which, a whinging pom. Whinging pom, you hear that a lot. <laughs> but you make a good joke of it and, and they'll crack a laugh and, you, you know, carry on. But, um, yeah, I kind of I kind of enjoy that, you know. I'll never be a Kiwi and I think you've got to embrace that. And, um, yeah. banter. Yeah, yeah. banter and, and, you know, you get talking to some Kiwis and, you know, you start talking about emotions and, you know, going down the mental health track. Um, you open up a few doors sometimes yeah. and close a few doors as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's never sh- short of a good conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very generous people. You met earlier my landlord i guess you could call him the farmer who's um allowed me to run this business on his land and he um he's been so generous just allowing me to um to work away and um been very supportive and, and he's a 78 year old helicopter pilot that's just retired and, and he's always up here helping me out and asking questions and i don't know he's a real real character and yeah. i think he's um a sort of spitting image of um yeah southern hops- hospitality you know he's um yeah yeah product of his age i guess it's yeah. lucky for that in this town as well. There's a lot of diversity, mm. which keeps it interesting. Yeah. Couldn't do it in Southland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's different. Different thing down there, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's tough. Um, it's a tough part of the country. You mm. get tough weather down there and you get tough men. Tough men, yeah. yeah. Tough work, mm. tough weather, yeah. How did you find it with your business then, Noel, when you were setting up being an immigrant? It's funny, you see proudly Kiwi-owned and Kiwi-operated quite a bit. Yeah. slogan you see quite a bit they're keen to support Kiwi companies and I, yeah. I respect that I think that's awesome but as a migrant did you ever I'd never even any... really thought about that um, right I was quite keen to get the Kiwi stamp you know the little Kiwi uh, New Zealand made yeah, yeah um, but I wasn't quite big enough to, to 
well to pay for it. Yeah, yeah right. Didn't I couldn't justify it yet. Um, yeah. But I was hoping to do that. Yeah, I suppose my product was kiwi made, made in New Zealand. Even though I'm an Irish man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny one, eh? Um, or to be honest, Richard, I just never felt any different for being Irish or any less yeah. important. You know, I You're really right. just felt welcome from day one. So I can't really say. When I think back to the working the building sites, um, I felt the Kiwi builder was held with a, held with a little bit more respect than um, yeah. an immigrant. Um, and that's just from a practical point of view because they've grew up in New Zealand they know how building is here mm-hmm. and they're less likely to leave mm. I've had a lot of um, workers work under me that are just flowing through and we're not invested in the job so but that, I wouldn't think that as see that as a racist sort of thing yeah. all, all I can say in my experience is really welcome so mm. yeah didn't feel any different being a being an Irishman setting up business here yeah. yeah I don't know if that answers your question yeah it does yeah yeah Everyone, everyone's experience is different I'm sure if you're from a South American community you might feel slightly different you know yeah. Um, I think being English, having having English as your first language certainly helps. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, communication. Yeah. I see that on the work site a little yeah. bit when, you know, you got a Czech boy or a fella from Hungary or quite quickly it's sort of, yeah, the hierarchy's been set just through <laughs> language. And you're like, well, actually, this fella's a shit-hot climber. Yeah. Just because he comes with the Czech Republic and, you know, a little bit broken English. But I don't know what that is. There's little nuances and little things that are missed in conversation when it's your second language. Yeah. It's a little bit harder to keep up. Yep. My partner's from South America. Um, yeah. And, well, she's a better grasp of the English language than I do <laughs> yeah. it's her second language but yeah I'm around that community and I've talked to a lot of them and probably haven't had the same, exact same experience as me to mm. be fair just from speaking to them Yeah. and uh, yeah language is a massive barrier you know mm. yeah I've, I've worked with people who have very poor grasp of English and it is a barrier in work you know and in a, especially in dangerous industries Yeah. if something is not understood it could mean life or death you know yeah yeah so maybe that's why there's a little bit of an earlier trust of someone who speaks English better mm. I don't know. Again, it goes back to a bit of privilege that we have. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're quite lucky. Important to acknowledge that, I think. I think our heritage, do you know what amazed me is like we come to, to the complete other side of the globe, like literally the other side of the world, and our culture is almost the same as the Kiwi culture, you know? Yeah. Because it's come from Irish, English, Scottish, probably originally. Yeah, all that background. Yeah. Mm. And it's funny when you speak to Kiwis when they hold their heritage to such heights. Yeah. You know, they know that their fifth grandfather is bloody Scottish from Dundee or. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite nice when people tell me they've been to Ireland and chased back their heritage. Uh, Have you heard that quite a bit? Yeah. Yeah, right. That makes me a little bit proud, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You don't hear that coming from London. <laughs> They're definitely more proud of being Irish and Scottish than English. So really? That, I reckon. Yeah. Almost rightly so. Oh, yeah, well, the English, the British, just, well, the English get punished all over the world because of things that happened a long time ago. Yeah, and they haven't really owned up to their bloody, their sins for all that. Yeah. Their slavery and um, colonialism. Yeah. Like the fact it's not even taught at school. Yeah. You know, I found out about that in, in university. Yeah. learning about colonialism I remember mates looking at me like what the how do you not know this Rich and I'm like oh it's not the bloody syllabus is it I've known about the Tudors <laughs> and the Romans not colonialism yeah. which has shaped the modern world oh yeah that's just how the times were and if it wasn't the English it was going to be someone else right mm. but it doesn't really um... yeah the markings are still there from it all you know yeah it still happened like yeah all the borders the are there and... Yeah. Mm. and that's what's so beautiful seeing in New Zealand the, the Maori identity the culture just being embraced and I, it's sad we don't have enough of it here there's not many Māori in, in Queenstown I should say or Central Otago I've got a very good friend Biggis who goes up to Bay of Islands to the Treaty Waitangi every year and, and sails on the wakas 
all the mouldy up there and and he's white as hell you know he's yeah. just uh he's the biggest pakeha you can you could find but he's fully embraced it and started learning mouldy and he's yeah he's been included into the community he's there he's been accepted yeah massively yeah massively he goes every year now and loves it yeah and i think that's um that that dialogue that um cohesion between two cultures is really important Oh, yeah. for them both to understand and, and survive each other yeah. I guess yeah you gotta communicate that's the mm. first step isn't it mm. Mm. yeah I suppose there's a lot of old wounds here in New Zealand with those, the two cultures you know and it's got they've got to come together I listened to a podcast of that guy I know the guy you're talking about Biggest yeah do you? Yeah. The builder in town, isn't he? Yeah. And Is he on a podcast? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's really interesting to talk about his learning of the language and, and what you just said when you yeah. up there. He seems right. like a real character, this guy. Oh, I was having dinner with him last night with Tess. Right, yeah. yeah. really rate him. His son's a good friend of ours. Right? And he's just one of these anomalies. Just You wouldn't expect it. You know, sort of white middle-class builder who just found Tiria, found Māori, the language, and just fully immersed himself into it. Yeah. And it's awesome. Lovely. Yeah. It obviously, means something strong to him. Yeah, he, he's just um, he's just been taken aback by it. Yeah, just loves it. Loves the community. Loves the the love. I think of the community as well. Yeah, which is rare in life nowadays. You don't have that in a, a white culture. They got some good values. Very simple good yeah. values that we're um, we're losing as uh, the Western culture is losing. I think we do lack it. Yeah, it reminds me of sort of my grandparents and how things were in those times. Mm. Our generation has become very greedy and, yeah. and self-obsessed. Mm. Yeah, you don't rely on your community anymore. If anything, you shut the door on them. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, that's a good talking point for us. Um, being uh, migrants here in Queenstown, how important is this community? It's such a different community. Mm. Uh, for me, and you're missing your immediate family, I suppose, from mm. the starter point. So you have to maybe embrace your friends almost as family, a lot of ways. Yeah, especially in Christmas. Yeah, yeah we just gone through this period of Christmas time yeah. and everyone's bloody an orphan. <laughs> you know, almost. You sort yeah. of, I know in Aratown there's a lot of internationals there. We all sort of hold barbecues. And I'm lucky because I've got a few cousins in New Zealand. Um, and my auntie and uncle they're up in sort of between Methvin and Nelson and Kerry Kerry but um, yeah still part of the sort of migrant um, family that live here and, and we all yeah look to each other for support I guess in this sort of time of year yeah which is important definitely makes Christmas more fun when you're hanging out with mates so Richard there's a few reasons I like doing business with you and these would be similar reasons why I think you're a good podcast guest um, your passion for what you do it's clear to see you get really excited about talking about some of the slabs you have and your favourite slabs and another thing is your product you're very particular about the quality of your product and the third thing is your personality always greeted with a smile and a good yarn do you think those things are key to your success certainly yeah I think um, what we were talking about earlier um, dialogue with people chatting um, just speaking to all sorts of different people you you never know when you're having a, a chat with a fella on the street who'll know so and so who's got a farm down south and needs a whole load of mac carpers or western yeah. red cedars taken out i think um yeah the ability to talk freely um sorry that's my dog wandering around <laughs> you can leave it noisy um yeah the ability to just um talk freely with people and, and openly and um have good discussions i think is um is important and certainly with business i think um often it can be sort of clouded with figures and and the cost of things and um i think when people come to the yard they see the product see the amount of work that's gone into uh, making that product and i love explaining that story i love telling people where that tree's come from 
yeah. uh, how we got it down, why it came down. Adds value. Yeah, yeah. yeah people understand the work that's gone into um, making that final product. And often I, you know, you were an awesome client because you were working on the wood for clients that would appreciate that, I think. Yeah, um, I was invested in that story as well. Yeah. And I, I love to attach a story to a piece of furniture. Right. Or anything I create. Yeah. Well, it definitely adds value, you know. Totally. People want to know where, where the product comes from. And especially in today's day and age, you know, you go to you know certain furniture shops that are nationwide, uh, you know, all that stuff's just coming from big plantations in Europe and Central Asia. It's sort of dime a dozen, I guess. And it's a hard one because you don't, people don't want to spend thousands on a bloody table to eat on. You know, I get that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not. But some people do. It's about finding those clients, I Yeah, guess. some people um, Some people do. Yeah. Um, we're quite lucky here. There's sort of the... Yeah, the, the affluence the, in the area. Yeah, there's that, that demographic mm. that can't afford to pay for quality product, you know? The hours put in, mm. the hours you put in, the mm. hours um, I might put in as a furniture maker. Mm. And they might see the value in a story. For them, it might be more valuable to have something that grew in this area for 100 years and was felled for a certain reason or came down in a storm or mm. had a story attached to it. Speaking of attaching stories to timber, um, something you taught me is about compression lines. And right. I knew what they looked like and yeah. I knew I liked them. Yeah. You explained to me how they come about. Can you explain to the guests? Compression timber. Yeah, when uh, trees grow in certain ways, they sort of lean towards the sun or against the prevailing wind. The cells within the timber will compress. Um, and then sort of bind together and then buckle and it creates this very figurative uh, wood I guess this sort of pattern in the timber that um, is really sought after I mean you'll see fiddleback guitars or fiddleback violins and um, some of the most expensive timber in the world is all fiddleback and that's down to the compression of timber and it's rare you know, you'll never get it out of a plantation it's normally old growth forests you know trees that have grown certain ways to find the light to survive and will buckle on one end you know the, the way they're leaning will then compress and then create those those Sort of fiddleback uh, characteristics in the timber and I'm constantly I, the uglier the log the better you know the more <laughs> character it's got the more gnarly and twisty and yeah. you know and, and you're sort of searching for that sort of that sort of timber um, everything that's you know straight grained and clear and no knots and it, I don't know it take me wrong if you want dimensional timber and you want to be making um, oh, tables or fine fine joinery like cupboards or desks out of dimensional timber you need that clear grain straight timber but when you're dealing with slabs do want that figurative yeah. work some of those compression lines I've seen in some of your slabs it's mm. it, you're looking at a 2D surface but it almost it's completely flat yeah but it almost looks 3D it looks but, wavy you know yeah yeah and it catches the sun in different ways and it glimmers and yeah. it shines and you try and read a log when you're processing it. If you you got a tree that's coming down, you want to see the bends and the curves in it, and you cut it to size, knowing that you've got to sort of maximise the amount of yield out of each log. But sometimes you'll have quite a plain log, and you open it up, and there's, there's all this figure inside where the tree's sort of grown over old defects or um, cavities that were once there. Yeah. And, and you start opening up almost history of the tree, you know, when it was planted to the sort of first pruning, or you, sometimes you find old fence posts or nails or bullets in the in the timber and yeah. you know I, I think they find that more in north america and um, especially in central europe um obviously during world war one and two um you know you're milling timber and you splice through a bullet that's, yeah. you know been in the timber for 100 years yeah i've come across pieces of lead have you I've yeah. yeah and you curse it or yeah. you find it with your machine don't you you bloody yeah. blade finds that i'm right through it yeah oh, end your day but um but then adds character and, and like you say a story to the timber
And New Zealand being quite scarce of, of old history, yeah. that's, um, that's still tangible. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of Māori history that um, is sort of spoken of, passes down through stories, um, but actual physical history in New Zealand is quite scarce, mm. especially around here. I mean, yep, you've got the gold miners, but I think coming from Ireland and me coming from England, you kind of laugh at <laughs> the age of that history. Yeah. Um, and so trees are a part of that you know old walnut trees that are planted by the homesteads up Skippers Canyon or on Threpwood yeah you know some of the most beautiful trees are on Threpwood Station these old cedars that if you're in Europe they would look like four five hundred year old trees but they're only 120 years old there reason yeah. being is because there's so much sunlight and water to allow fast growth so you get some pretty impressive trees in the region that aren't a ridiculous age good growing conditions great growing conditions yeah, yeah. just um just nothing to compete with them so it makes the timber large, but mm. typically not the most impressive. You know, I'm not comparing my walnut with Bastogne French walnut from the 1600s, you know. Mm. That stuff's to die for, and I'm very envious of the sawmills over in Europe and North America. And, well, yeah. I won't say South America, because a lot of that's just forest. Yeah. You know, and that comes into a sort of ethical side of um, harvesting timber. But, We're um, going to talk about that soon too, but, mm. but it's from here, you know. I, yeah. I, I love that, you know. It tells the story of here. Yeah. I got my hands on a couple of slabs a couple of years ago um, from Whitechapel Road near our town. A couple of Douglas fir slabs, and I think they're 135 years old, apparently. Yeah, they were we, when we counted the rings, something like that. So using the, the age of a man, what the tribe trees they were, they guessed that they were probably gold miners who came here and probably needed some shelter. Right. So they planted these trees for mm. shelter because they, they grow quite fast. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And something magical about that. It takes you back in time to the yeah. history and you think fuck I wonder what these guys life was like back then you know oh, yeah the purpose of those trees eh yeah yeah bringing the Douglas firs over for timber and, and fast growing trees for shade and shelter and hedgerows yeah. and, and every different one has a different story and it's really interesting you know I think I, think I know the trees that came down there actually it's part of the reforestation trust yeah three yeah. or four years ago was it or four yeah. or five something like that yeah huge huge yeah and I was just I had my Alaskan mill at that time and Amon Saunders who um, my first employer old mate he's passed sadly last year yeah. but he called me up and he says right rich you've got got some douglas fir trees you're gonna want these <laughs> and i get there and these trees are huge enormous too like, big for you oh too big yeah. i was like oh, it was one of those jobs i really wanted to take on but um didn't have the gear for it and those ones ended up being tables in the new primary school in our town so oh awesome they got used like maybe two kilometers away from where they were originally yeah, right. planted and cut down that's yeah. how timber needs to be used yeah we should stop importing all this stuff from bloody sweden it gets put through ammonia treatment to yeah. come work here because it's stable. It's good growing conditions here. I think it's frustrating seeing New Zealand getting turned into a Pinus radiata forestry block. It's all yeah. you see. And yet you could grow so many different timbers. Western red cedars, eastern red cedars. Yeah, they go good. Oaks, walnuts, yeah. you know, plenty of land. It's just that sort of, that want for quick, fast, easy timber yeah. to then sell to markets overseas. Yeah, well, you see all the deforestation that's happening here and it's costing millions and millions of dollars and mm. so all that tree is going to waste mm. and then we're buying our timber for building from Canada yeah, or yeah, Europe yeah. it's just crazy especially the cladding aspect of it when you see you know Pacific Northwestern Western Red Cedar yeah. getting used to cladding you know the cost of it eye watering yeah. clad your house it's tens of thousands crazy and it's just a trend one person has it and everyone else wants yeah. it it's a massive trend here actually you'd think if a tree grew in this environment it would probably last longest in this environment after it's cut totally and if it's seasoned in, in the environment yeah. as well and I think that's where 
you know, you can buy a slab from Dunedin that's been dry for three years and bring it to Central Otago. We've still got another year of drying now. Yeah. That relative moisture content in the environment here is so harsh, so dry. It's amazing how it changes so fast. Like, Dunedin's only three hours away. Yeah. Or even here to yeah. Alexandra, it changes again. You know, yeah. It's more desert-like almost. Yeah. Worst environment for timber. You know, it's, um, I kind of, I'm very aware of it when I'm drying my timber, how harsh this environment is. Dries it out too quickly. Yeah. But you get a product at the end of it that shouldn't move on you. You know, if I set it after two or three years of drying, it should be fully dry to the environment you want to work in it. Good drying conditions. Yeah. I suppose if the timber doesn't warp after three years in this environment, it's got a very good chance of staying straight in it. Right. After it's planed and, yeah. and flattened off. But but yeah, lovely to hear that story of, of the Douglas firs getting reused two kilometres away yeah. by kids in a local school. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what it's about, story, really. Yeah. Working on a house at the moment, um, close to here actually. Um, I want to say the exact address. But all those um, all those trees on the face of, of, of our town that have been cut down they're using that timber as part of the build oh, are they? I don't know where it's getting milled um, yeah. it goes through placemakers so I'm sure maybe it goes up to Nelson Pine or something like that and comes back down I'm not sure but it's, it's nice it's frustrating to hear yeah. stories like that but yeah yeah it's nice to see it's getting used yeah do you know what type of trees? they're all that face I don't know if we can see it from here on that face of those Aratown hills I've, we've been using it it does split quite easily sycamore no, it's it's pine. It's, oh, it's some Douglas kind of pine. fir. Douglas fir, probably. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's funny with the the wilding pine program. There's so many trees out in, in the sticks that you just can't access. Yeah. So much good timber sitting on the hills that you know gets felled to waste because you can't get the the timber out. You can't get machinery up there. Well, plant, yeah, yeah, not not cost effectively. Yeah. And you look at Queenstown Hill. There's not enough Hill. timber there to justify yeah. building a road. And it hasn't been pruned or yeah. you know it's um wilding timber. But you look at Queenstown Hill and uh, the work they've been doing up there. Pretty impressive some huge trees that have been taken out there and they're all still on the hillside not one tree's come off that hillside yet yeah and um from a sawmiller's point of view i look at it and it's like buddy oh you could build half of some of the local housing estates yeah. with that timber yeah. it's just sitting there and it's just going to sit and rot it's such a shame it is a bit yeah, yeah. so it's i guess it comes through education talking to the council talking to contractors that um you know timber doesn't always need to be burnt or processed for firewood yeah yeah i guess there's no other sawmill around and i don't advertise that heavily uh, yeah. yet i should say um, to take on jobs of that scale maybe in the future it'll be you know be cool to put a mill up on that hillside and start you know yeah. milling all those for, for council projects or community housing or yeah it'd be great because it's just there it's just right yeah <laughs> right in front of us yeah. you know yeah we're coming into an age where we're realising big problems with the climate mm. um, and transportation uh, is a massive cost and all that isn't it yeah environmentally and financially yeah economically it yeah. just seems so ridiculous uh, we're shipping shiploads and shiploads and shiploads of cedar from Canada to here yeah yeah when it's yeah like say it's right here right here and we can start growing it easily larch yeah. what an amazing timber you know you see people buying siberian larch now for cladding real tight growth rings beautiful timber mm. but that's old growth forest it's not plantation of it that's you know it's been growing in siberia for 400 years slow growing <laughs> so you know yeah the slowest yeah um and it's not like on a recycle program of like every 30 years they cut and harvest and then replant yeah uh, which they obviously do with the pinus radiata here so you know the, the larch coming from there is beautiful but at an environmental cost massive yeah and i think that just there needs to be some awareness of when people are buying cladding buying timber for flooring it's pretty rare these days or big beams of where that timbers come come from yeah what's the carbon footprint of bringing five cubic meters of of cedar from a forest in canada all the way over to new zealand yeah it's huge 
Just stealing from a future, you know? Yeah. All the forest's going to be gone. Although they won't see it, you yeah. know? Yeah, there's um, willful ignorance, I think, is tied to that. You see similar things in the Amazon as well. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one because I see a lot of sawmills um, selling that, that kind of babinga, quila, iroko. Yeah. All these amazing African hardwoods and you look at it and you're like, how the hell are you getting that yeah. from a sustainable or ethical source? Yes. You can't be. Yeah. And I think if you buy it, the end user needs to know that they're complicit with the fella cutting it down. I saw it in Laos where communities out there would cut down a banyan tree every 10 years and that one tree would be the source of timber for the rest of the village, you know. So for 10 years they can roll on that one massive sort of 3 metre wide, 50 metre tall tree mm. and they'll carve it up with a chainsaw by hand and mill the boards freehand and, and take the boards and use it for a new kitchen or, you know, a new marae equivalent or... You know, community house or storeroom or... And these guys, bamboo is, you know, the main source of all that, of all their building product, but they'll need a banyan tree for watertight flooring or, or for, for the roofing. And then bamboo will be all the structural timber. Yeah. And it's just amazing seeing these communities work with, you know, fast-growing products like bamboo, bamboo um, and then a banyan tree, and they respect that that banyan tree has taken 700 years to grow, you know. Mm. And they're not going around cutting every single tree down just to make quick buck. Now, that was a one community that did it right. I'm sure there's... Many Many, many others out there but I think we need to see it from a global point of view in such an affluent part of, of the world that you can't just expect to carry on cutting all this timber down yeah. in other countries and, and yeah and not feel of, the guilt I guess yeah well we don't feel the guilt because we're protected from it we don't, don't see it, it. <laughs> don't yeah. see it but yeah, it's like food, I suppose, yeah, as well. You yeah, know, it's the, the same, meat industry. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not equating it to the same. You know, um, I understand that everyone needs cladding and, and flooring, and you know, and timber is such a beautiful product because it is regenerative, but it's got to be used in the right way. Yeah, um, it's just frustrating seeing all this land here and the growing conditions being so perfect that you can grow large trees, and after 40 years, you've got you know the same product as if you're cutting down a 400-year-old large tree in Siberia. Minus all the transportation on boats and mm. all the rest of it. Seems like such a simple uh, solution, but yeah, but needs a thirty-year investment or a forty-year investment, you know. Yeah, and maybe that goes against the sort of protection of native forests here. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of land, especially with the carbon credits now you get for planting forests. So yeah. a lot of a lot of farmers that have say high country that's not particularly productive with merino wool or sheep or beef. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of scrubland. You can put huge forest blocks on that, and it and it will pump. Yeah. And then you sell the carbon credits to companies like Unilever and um, Virgin Atlantic or, you know, New Ze- Air New Zealand, and they buy the carbon credits. So when you go and buy your flight to Auckland, you can offset your carbon credits by buying five trees off some farmer's block. It's great, but it creates a monoculture. You look at those forestry blocks. Yeah. I'm not saying grass paddocks are much better, but I think we just got to be aware of the implications of just planting pinus radiata. Yeah, well, you were involved in the whole wilding deforestation, which, mm. and the problem with that is it was taking all the light, wasn't it? So all the New Zealand little native species and stuff. Yeah, couldn't grow in it. Yeah. yeah. It just turns into Queenstown Hill. That's a hard one. It's a balance. You know, I'm not saying eradicate every bloody pine tree in New Zealand. You know, they, they have their uses. And you look at Queenstown Hill and how beautiful it is. got to think of the aesthetics mm. that those large trees provide. In urban environments, it really adds value to a space. You know, if you start decking every tree down just because it's not from here, then, well, bloody hell, me and you should pack up and go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're <laughs> not from here <laughs> How native are we wanting to make New Zealand? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, I just, a, that's a yeah that's well that's another question it's a fair point I guess yeah conservation mm, 
innovation and evolution and which, yeah. which one is more important it's got to be a balance and balance. I understand the backcountry here in central Otago is pretty fragile you know when you put a tussock and a pine in a in a field I'm pretty sure the pine will come out on top you know um, yeah well that's that's the problem it eradicates the native landscape yeah I think you, it's you just say what, and from an aesthetic point of view but that's very um, objective you know that's very one, that's one person's opinion of what's pretty but maybe someone else thinks like the original landscape is what looks good yeah pot dry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a massive thing as well someone explained to me a landscaper that once all those trees are gone they are actually soaking in massive amounts of UV and soaking all that energy from the sun yeah but once they disappear um, we lose a lot of that and, and we're, get, we're getting it so we'll get a lot hotter the yeah. climate will become a lot more like maybe Alexandra mm. is you know totally it's interesting you, know, you go up to the Crown Range you look down on the basin and see how leafy and green it is yeah. and I think you compare it to the days of in the 60s and 70s you, you see photographs of it and how barren and, and, and hot it is uh, yeah it's interesting with the climate here and what it's going to turn into I mean right now it's sitting at sort of what 30 degrees almost boiling hot yeah. Uh, summer's day. We're sitting under some shade of some nice eucalyptus, eucalyptus. trees. Yeah. Another wilding. <laughs> you get rid of these, we wouldn't be sitting in shade. Yeah. Is eucalyptus a wilding? Oh, it's it's a wilding tree. Yeah, they they do spread. They're not as bad as the Douglas firs. Oh, so wilding isn't actually a species. No, it's, it's just uh, the spreadability. Just, of it's a tree. Uh, yeah, it's a common phrase for a, an unwanted tree, I guess, or a tree that ah, spreads prolifically. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. I thought wilding pine was a species of pine. Pine, no, no. Yeah. If anything, they, you know, people talk about wilding pines, and they point at a uh, Oregon, a Douglas fir. That's a fir tree. It's not a pine tree. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's quite common, I guess, in in you know common names of trees. Yeah. Yeah. When they when you talk to Kiwis and they're like, oh, that's a that's an old man pine, not a radiata. You're like, oh no, they're the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, just over names. time, people yeah. think an old man pine is something totally different. Yeah. Well, I've had fine. some funny conversations there trying to educate Kiwis <laughs> on that and you give up you know yeah. you just can't teach an old dog new tricks yeah old man pine is valued as firewood is it um, yeah, yeah. Say, yeah. Oh, it's burns better or yeah something. but radiata is uh, average yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, sake. oh yeah you mentioned salvaging Rimu from Stewart Island right Tell yeah oh, probably the funnest job I've ever had more to date um, a good friend of mine Willie Todd he's a local boy he um he put me in touch with an old friend of his who's a sort of sixth generation crayfishman in Stewart Island. And he has a block of land out there, all native bush, and had an old, must have been still yet to count the rings on the slabs, but be about five to 700 years old, I'd imagine. Wow. And being down in Stewart Island, the growing conditions are pretty rough. So, you know, much slower growing than, than typical Rimu in sort of upper South, South Island and North Does Island. Does that lead to better quality timber yeah I think the joiners Tiger. would say that yeah I'm probably not um, qualified enough to say because I don't work with the timber on a f sort of fine scale yeah. or like on the finer end of things um, yeah we'd, um, we'd sort of value something with tight grain yeah I think when you've got big spaces between the grains mm. that's the porous part of the timber that right will take in moisture take in air and uh, lead to movement I guess right okay so the less of that that's there the more tightly packed that is the more dense the timber is yeah. the less movement you're bound yeah, to have interesting. I yeah makes sense yeah. yeah very tight grain I mean yeah you can see it it's um, it's stunning and it'd been it'd been windfalled about seven years ago and so it sat on the forest floor for seven years and then all the sap would have got eaten away and rotted out covered in hoo-hoos hoo-hoo grubs the native beetle that spends two years in a, in a log chewing its way through timber yeah. and then pops out as a beetle and I think it spends three weeks as a beetle and then dies again what a life 
<laughs> Reminds me of some of the photos awesome. I know back home. They're huge. Huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And part of the yeah native diet, I think, back in the day when there wasn't much to go around. Have you um... eaten a hoo-hoo? I have. It was part of the wilding pine initiation and being a forest boy. You right. have to eat a hoo-hoo. I had a good friend, Chris Bennett, who, uh, yeah, it was a delicacy to that fella. He loved him. He loved him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this log was um, was uh, riddled with it. So I was kind of skeptical at first, but was keen for the mission. It was, uh, you know, something I'd never done before. I never milled out in Stewart Island, let alone any Rimu. Mm. Um so went ahead with um, getting resource consent from the Ministry of Primary Industries to mill the Rimu log, mill the tree. And you've got to do that with any any native tree that yeah. you want to mill, which is part of the sort of protection. Yeah. So what gives someone, uh, what allows them to, be, the fact that it has fallen in the wind? Yeah, yeah, wind fallen on private land. If it was wind fallen on dock land, you can't touch it. Oh. Um, but because it was on his land, he could. Yeah. Um, there's other stipulations, whether it was a plantation of native or um, whether it was close to a building, you can apply for consent to take out a tree because it's dangerous. Um, but this one was wind fallen. So yeah, we went ahead with it and, and the fellas at MPI were great to deal with. And I think... Um, they love the fact that they're getting sawmillers contacting them. They want people to go through the right channels. You know, it's, mm. I think again back back to dialogue, talking about it, and um, and they are, you know, they want the timber to be used. They, you know, yeah. they understand it is a habitat for hoo-hoos. But when you look at the whole of Rimu, um, Stewart Island, it's covered in timber. Yeah. You know, so use it while you can, or when you can, I should say. Um, so yeah, they gave us consent, but the, <laughs> the stipulation in the consent was that you can't cut a track. To the tree and, and carry it out with a four before or a truck and it was about a 20 minute walk into the bush um so they said you gotta uh, extract the timber with a helicopter <laughs> it threw a spanner in the works and i looked at it and i was like right well that's obviously up the cost of this whole project because i wasn't buying the log i was just doing a one of these quasi deals and uh, with the the owner and um we were going to share the cost of the um of the helicopter um, and split the wood 50-50. Mm. Um, so yeah, he helped me mill the timber along with Willie and um, a bunch of other Stuart Islanders who were, who were great fun. You know, that was a, it was an occasion for them awesome. and for me. Yeah. So you brought your mill down there? Bought the mill down there, shipped it over and uh, we were there for eight, eight or nine days. Took longer than I thought. Um, it was a big twin stem trunk. We got about 18 slabs each. There was about 30 slabs in total. Um, we got out of wow. one tree and then divided them up into sort of three slabs per pack and then got a squirrel from to a tapri to fly over and then lifted them out. And some of them they couldn't lift. They were that heavy and that large. So the helicopter's hanging above with this long long line and we're frantically <laughs> trying to repack these slabs and it's like, shit, this is costing us a fortune. <laughs> yeah. Um, and repack them and... Repack and them not, and, then, and, and they're then, not light. They're not like, yeah. yeah, moving around. But we had the whole village there, it felt like. Everyone in Oban, the local village in Stewart Island, came out to lend a hand. Yeah, and then we flew it all again. back. Yeah, it was awesome. Everyone was sort of part of it. I think a slab went to every guy who helped out sort of thing, which is great. <laughs> and then shipped it over and it's now sitting in the sheds here, still drying for yeah. another year until that's ready. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of upfront costs, I guess, with jobs like that. But you kind of soak in the costs because it's so fun. There's stories to tell. You good know. stories and good times. You know, it's something I'll never forget. Um, a lot of people might want to go to Stewart Island for a holiday for eight days and try and get a local experience and pay for it right you're, you're doing it as part yeah. of your job you know yeah yeah it's fun that was a lot of beer <laughs> shit those boys can drink yeah eight o'clock box of beers come out in the morning and, and a massive bag of oysters and you're like oh what a breakfast you know <laughs> and they're chowing it down oh it's great yeah made some good friends there Brilliant. yeah so yeah this is supposed to be um an inspirational podcast um 
wondered where do you get your inspiration obviously you love your timber uh, you taught me one time about your visit to Lindsay and Dixon down down south yeah down in Tootsie um, and I saw you visit a veneer house in, in California yeah Geo Veneer I imagine they're probably big inspirations oh massive yeah it's sort of the mecca of um, sawmilling and a sort of timber emporium I guess yeah um, yeah those guys have been doing it since the 70s in in LA and they I mean they import a lot of their timber from Brazil which again is questionable yeah. monkey pod from Hawaii which I know is legitimate um, but also you know a lot around the sort of northern states of the US and they go far and wide for it and so I guess they give me inspiration as a business model sort of knowing that it can be done and there is a market for it uh, and if you go the distance you go the length to find the timber and you have that stock then um, people are going to want it I guess Cool. Did um, you meet the owners? Didn't. No, he was there, but he and I was sort of I am up, but he was obviously talking with this quite a ritzy client who who came into the um into the warehouse. I mean, they employ seventy pe- people. It's you a know, they're a massive operation. Yeah. And I'm not saying I want to get to that size by any means. You know, I have no employees, and the idea of one scares the hell out of me. You know, yeah. I quite like the fact that um I can walk out of this business for two weeks and go diving and, and I don't have a mouth to feed at the end of it you know Yeah. Um, I think that's um, really attractive as a um, sort of business operator or owner operator that you, um, you're not tied to an employee Yeah. but to scale up you do need it you know you need the staff the, the expertise um, the know-how and the knowledge to, to really push a business into the next level and I guess yeah. I'm now facing that step really of um you know where's this going to go yeah and I, I think at some point um yeah i'll, I'll definitely need a, a second pair of hands to help out yeah and i'm looking forward to that because i want whoever comes on board to be as passionate and as excited about um the timber as i am yeah but also add a different uh level of it or different layer i should say um especially with the social media aspect of it where you and um marina were really good at it you know i yeah. think you guys um nailed it down to a t you were um very um expressive but uh, you you explained the process through word and also through um like the video the media yeah um you know the, it's a great tool yeah, yeah. it just it simplifies it in a way mm-hmm. where people the client um you know the customer can can see yeah. the process that you're going through to make their piece um, my first employee, well, my first full-time employee, I had a guy before that to help me, but was a young guy called Nico, and he gave us a massive push with that I remember social him. media. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he helped us a lot, so... And you learned a lot of him, you reckon? Or? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. He was definitely a good asset. Um, he was just a good... Uh, young energy was good to have yeah. around the place. Yeah. Lots of good ideas, and he, he was passionate about it. So Yeah. Yeah, I knew I was never going to keep him forever, but... I think I got him, had him for a year and a half, and he was it's massive. Pretty good help. going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. What would be your words of advice then with employees? Because <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I've obviously never had one, and I yeah. sort of look at it. I just don't. I worry about the risk of it. I guess. What's the risk? What yeah, risk? of having someone that you need to feed work. Yeah, it's pressure. Yeah, it's definitely pressure. Yeah, and I've, and I like any employee I've had. I've had Nico. Nick, Gary, yeah. So I've had four different guys um, mm. in my four years of business, and Marina as well, I suppose. But their paycheck comes before my paycheck. You know what I mean? Totally. There's a pressure, and you have to pay him. You can't not pay people. Mm. My very first employee, Alfred's, who's a mate of mine, I wasn't ready for him. He came to me first, and I was like, okay, let's try it. Um, and I quickly realised, 
you didn't have the work for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to, yeah. But like you just said before, you if you want to scale up and grow, you have to maybe do that. Yeah. Um, and there's big benefits to it, but it's it, it's a pressure. Yeah. 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 And it's and if you ask for advice, I'd say yeah, find someone who's who's passionate. Mm. I couldn't, for me, I couldn't have someone who didn't care, you know, who was dragging their heels, who didn't want to be there. I just yeah. could not work with that person who was like, I just wouldn't want to, it would kill me. I wouldn't want to teach him. I wouldn't want to share with him yeah. because I know he doesn't care. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm sure you will find someone who has a similar passion. Mm. I find it there's um, sort of growing popularity in woodworking now. Um, mm. Younger people are wanting to be more involved with um, a manual product or a manual medium yeah. um, working with your hands and not having that computer time, the screen time that I think a lot of people face um, in the office or in modern day uh, yeah. work in, in their lives um, and quite interestingly you um, met a new friend of mine called Lex up in Nelson when you did a woodworking course Yeah, a girl um, from the UK yeah. Yeah. So she was staying with me in Aratown quite recently. Is that right? Yeah, and she's um, she's an awesome chick who's uh, obviously doing um, sort of pro bono uh, law work with migrants in the UK. Yeah. Some really holistic legal work. Yeah. You know, I think um, what she's doing is great. She's working with another friend, Chloe, and uh, she did a course with you in Nelson. She did. Um, yeah, she did a longer course, and I was in a different class. So we we just overlapped by maybe a week or something. Right. Okay. Um, and I yeah. Had a couple of yarns with her yeah but yeah. it was really cool yeah she was really into the woodworking yeah, yeah. and she's carrying it on a sort of as a yeah as a hobby she's um yeah. yeah she's helping out this sort of um this men's club in wellington at the moment who've got all the tools and she goes in there and she's making all sorts of things Brilliant. and i think that's awesome seeing that sort of our generation or younger getting more involved with it but they don't have the space or the mm. tools or the they've got the time i'd say yeah but the space and the tools is the most important thing and that's where i found a challenge finding a sawmill in queenstown yeah. Uh, you know where the hell can you make a shitload of noise not pissing anyone off yeah um, but you can see the desire um, for people like Lex to, to work with wood and I think I have real high hopes for woodworking in the future yeah you know I can see it having a real people are revival passionate about these things yeah, yeah. these crafts yeah and more and more in, in life you have less time to work with your hands yeah. I think we're quite lucky we work in trades where we're constantly doing that yeah but um, speaking on behalf of friends back in the UK who um, just don't naturally have that time, so have to find it in these woodworking programs yeah. or, or workshops where you've got older fellows who, who have the expertise and the knowledge to help the younger generation out. Yeah, there's lots of good... Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to do a podcast with um, the Wakatipu Woodworkers Guild. Right. I'm in here in Queenstown. Did you not? I thought you started that. No, I didn't Did start you not? it. No, I want to start one back home. Do you? Maybe that's what I said to you. Right. And I, I will, yeah. I want to start a, a whole crafting community, mm. creatives. Mm. Um, that's one of my ambitions, one of my many ambitions, yeah, obviously. Yeah. That but yeah, like a good one. I joined that group and it was great. And it was exactly that. It was like a guy who had a really good job, maybe had a workshop. So he'd lend his workshop and some of his experience. And the younger person would come in with energy. And it's just um, together they work on things, you know. And mm. it's just, a, it's a community. Yeah. And it's brilliant, you know, like because mm-hmm. everyone in a community, old or young, has something to give. Yeah. And it's a trade-off. It's a place where they have a trade-off. And I encourage that and I'd like to see it happening more and more. Yeah. And yeah, I remember meeting Lexi. Yeah, she's a nice girl. And 
I could tell she was real into it and sort of hopeful that she might continue the journey. So it's good to yeah. hear that she is. Yeah, she's yeah. involved with some, some funny old, old boys in Wellington by the sounds of it. She's got a couple of yarns, I bet. Yeah, yeah she has, for sure. Yeah. Uh, she's going back to the UK. and I, Yeah, I hope that she can continue it back there. You know, I think yeah. um, it's important um, when you learn these skills to just keep on using them, practicing them. And also having the sort of source of timber. I think um, a lot of people struggle with that. But, um, you know, for a lot of people starting out, they don't need much. Do you no. know what I mean? In terms of yeah. stock. I mean, it's... Um, Especially if it's a hobby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're not doing massive grand pianos or staircases or, yeah. do you know what I mean, bookcases. So um, it'll be good to be part of that, I guess. Being a local sawmill, there's a lot of offcuts that come with it. It'll yeah. be quite cool to, um, yeah, tee up with this woodworkers guild. People like that, you know, and just have a sort of symbiotic relationship where they need a space to work or, yeah. um, you know, offcuts of walnut that they need for inlays or, you know. Yeah. Stuff like that. I look at a lot of timbers in my firewood pile. I'm like, Jesus. Yeah, that's a off cut of Rimu that you know, probably could be turned into something like a small box if you resawn it. And, I've yeah. had lots of old um, sort of retired woodworkers come to me, and usually their daughter would see on my social media what we're doing, and they'd reach out to me. Um, Have you got any pieces of Rimu or something? My dad likes carving, mm. um, because he wouldn't be in touch with the social media, maybe. And they'd come around, and things that yeah that were destined for the firewood that they'd make use out of. Mm. I'd love to see that, um, because I used to try and collect every little single piece and think I'd use it someday, but you run out of space. Mm. Um, yeah, just what you were speaking earlier about um, people changing and getting back into these crafts I think me and you both are quite lucky mm. we're in a job where we're getting to work with such ta- tactile material and we're getting exercise and we're getting the great feedback of working on something and seeing the results of your work mm. it's so different to like punching in numbers on a computer or, or whatever might an office job might entail isn't it yeah yeah it's funny one eh? because i think yeah as time goes on people get sort of more and more disconnected from that the manual labor of yeah. working Unless you're in a trade. And nature. And nature. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very privileged to be in a in a role where I can work with my hands outside and with people. Sometimes, though, on the sawmill, I'm just stirring in my own head. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get too much time alone. Yeah, same. Um, if I'm sanding for three or four days straight. Yeah. <laughs> get crazy, eh? That's where podcasts come in for me. Yeah. Yeah. Start listening to yourself when you podcast. <laughs> oh, great. Speaking about New Zealand natives earlier, um, we talked a bit about Rimu. Uh, there's another sort of phenomenon here, uh, Swamp Cowrie. Right. Um, I was never aware of Swamp Cowrie or what it was until I came here. Mm. Can you tell the listeners that might not know? Right, I mean, Swamp Cowrie, again, learnt in New Zealand. Um, certainly not a species you hear of back home. Oh. I think there's seven different Cowrie trees. Um, Fijian Cowrie, uh, yeah. Flores Cowrie. But there's a particular one in New Zealand that was prolific in the North Island um, and still grows to this day, although it suffers from um, Kari dieback, which is a, um, a fungal disease, I believe, that sort of travels through the roots. Right. Um, I don't know too much about it because we don't have it down here in the sort of bottom of the South Island. But um, Swamp Kari in particular um, is Kari that's been preserved in bog, in peat bog or type of bog that's basically anaerobic so you haven't got any oxygen in the in the bog in the in the swamp that can degrade or um decompose decompose the timber so i believe you talk about sort of forty thousand year old um swamp kari and i think roughly about that year around that age there was a very large tsunami that traveled across the northern peninsula sort of above auckland and wiped out a lot of that kari stock in the lower sort of wetlands um and so that's why so many of them were knocked and they were all in there's that particular time period i think yeah 
there's sort of natural historical events that um yeah because I've, I've heard that like forty thousand years i've heard that day quite a lot a, a few times yeah now. and i think it's you know give or take a couple of hundred years or a thousand years so of course but it gets reserved in this bog and then sits there and, and you know gets buried and now oh i think it was probably in the 60s or 70s guys up there started digging around in fields and realizing there's a shitload of timber sitting underneath these paddocks perfectly preserved perfectly preserved and they are massive i mean when I was up there in um, Dargaville, Kerry Kerry kind of area about four years ago, I was looking at bringing down a lot of swamp curry to sell here. And I met a fellow called Nelson who is just south of Dargaville. would highly recommend meeting him if you ever get a chance up to go up there. And he is just this Goliath of a man that's been harvesting swamp curry all his life. Um, and he's got a, a, a showroom and a warehouse of timber to die for. I mean, he's just got heaps of these enormous slabs that he would typically send out to... Asia, that was, I think, the biggest market for it was out there. But he had these logs sat in his yard waiting to be milled. And they were, you know, four meters wide, eight meters long. You know, just like <laughs> ridiculous trees. And you realize, yeah, wider than the average car. You know, just stupidly big. I've got some great photos of him chatting away. And I was keen as mustard to hear every story he had. And he'll be standing on top of this massive log. And um, I'll be picking his brains. And you just see these things, just the size of these trees and what they got to. It yeah. makes Tani Mahuta look small. You know, the yeah. largest Kari tree in New Zealand still standing. What's that? What's the translation of that word? Tani Mahuta, mother of the forest, I believe. Yeah. Something like that. Um, yeah. Or father of the forest, maybe. Father yeah. of the forest, yeah. I went to visit that tree as well. Yeah, that's special. Yeah. Yeah, it's just incredible. Like, the size you're talking about. Mm. So, what, maybe colonizers came and just deforested all the massive trees. Yeah. And they didn't realize these ones were under the earth, so that's why they were... I think, yeah, yeah everything had gone and, the, you know, there was quite a lot of laws that got passed during the 60s, 70s to stop the deforestation because it had just gone so far. Yeah. Um, and so the only ethical way to extract kari and that kind of size was to then dig down. And so you had, you know, all these 30-ton diggers ripping up paddocks. You know, it's suddenly a new gold rush. Yeah. Um, but there's argument there that I think a lot of environmentalists uh, aware that, you know, you're digging up peat bog. It's very fragile. You know, that environment hasn't been disturbed for... The ecosystem. Yeah, thousands of years. You can't just rip through with a 30-ton digger and expect there to be no consequence. So um, there is an element of it that is um, questionable, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm probably not educated enough to argue for or against. Yeah. But what I will say is the timber is beautiful. You yeah. You look at that, that timber and it's... Um, it's quite impressive so yeah so it's carbon dated 40,000 years yeah it's amazing in itself isn't it when you're trying to well, I'm trying to think back at a tree that was 135 years and how things were back then mm. I can't even really imagine what it was like yeah. 40,000 years ago but yeah and then these trees grow to what size again oh don't quote me on this but they're bloody big yeah. I mean tiny Mahuda has a 8 metre girth yeah in terms of the circumference yeah but its diameter will probably be about 3 metres something like that so how old would that tree be Tiny Mahood, I believe, is... Oh, oh, I don't want to say it on a podcast, but uh, <laughs> imagining somewhere between 800 to 1,000 years old. 1,000 years growing, yeah. Yeah, something like that, I'd imagine. Mm. Um, could be older, could well be older, I'm not sure. It's funny, in central Otago, our only natives we see are really a, a beach. Yeah. And they get to around 700, 800, but they're pretty prone to rotting, and, and the timber's... The trees grow helixly, so they um, they corkscrew as they go up for strength. And so by the time you come to mill them, um, yeah, the boards are all cupping and bowing and moving ah, all sorts I've of. I've seen I've seen trees like that where you can see you the can twist see this yeah the twist yeah. in the bark. 
Is it following the sun? Not the sun, just... Um, gives it strength. Gives it strength. I don't yeah. know what's inside the cell structure to say everything's got to go three degrees to the right or, you know, yeah. it's an incredible process how a tree grows yeah um and how it heals itself and and communicates you know when it knows it's getting attacked by aphids it'll be putting growth on down below new growth to then photosynthesize because it knows that leaves are getting incredible things but they've been you know developing over millennia millions yeah. of years yeah. in fact you know evolution yeah and we kind of just see it and oh bloody like eucalyptus tree cut it down you know means nothing but that eucalyptus is one of the oldest species in the world come yeah. from australia you know it's um and it hasn't needed a change it's um, a vigorous hard hardwood that's um that's prolific you know it's um it's quite hard to kill they're an amazing um, biological machine you I know? think anything that survives in australia is going to be tough isn't it yeah <laughs> just by default it's, yeah it's a very good way of putting it yeah <laughs> it's just a tough environment isn't it it doesn't really yeah and even the wood is tough. You talk mm. talk to the sawmillers out in Aussie, and all the all the timber they're cutting, they got to sharpen their saws every third pass because mm. the wood's so dense. I used to buy rattler blades off a guy from Australia. He developed yeah. them for Australian hardwoods. Did he? Yeah, they work on those. They go all right on the timber I was using. Yeah. 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 Tough material. Everything's tough over there. Everything. Hard life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You told me about Lindsay and Dixon, and I'm, I really right. want to go down and visit that place. You should. But, yeah. Um, can you tell the listeners? It's an old, yeah, sorry. It's a it's an old sawmill down in Tuatapri in the deep south of uh, the South Island. All the technology they're using these massive bandsaws, four meters high and three meters wide. They're just some ridiculous gear down there, and they're milling a lot of native beech. That's all um, second or third growth. Um, from plantations so it's it's all very ethical forestry and the, and the way they manage it is really forward thinking um and it, it just takes into account the next three or four generations of, of millers down there and it's rare to see that i guess in the forestry sector in new zealand they're only thinking of the the next 20 30 years but Lindsay and dixon are thinking of the next hundred yeah um so it's it's just it's great to see old businesses like Lindsay and dixon think of the future not for their kids or grandkids but for that next generation mm. to really secure the future i guess um plus all the machinery in there is just awesome it's all yeah. from the 60s and hasn't changed yeah uh, and they're running big steam kilns <laughs> it's just you know it takes you back in time yeah well, um i really want to visit that place definitely do yeah yeah, yeah and I, I mean i just turned up with my partner Tess, who I can't tell you how many how many timber holidays we've had <laughs> in New Zealand. She's been very patient and yeah. uh, a real asset to my business. I can't tell you. Is she, she passionate about it now as well? As she a, is. It's yeah. great. You know, we'll be going around. She's like, "Holy shit! Do you see that oak tree?" Or you know, and she'll look at timber and be like, "Wow, that must be um, that must be you know Totra or yeah. you know, she really knows, which is cool. Um, this is the same. Yeah. yeah. Right. She knows little bits and it excites her. And yeah. She's really good at explaining to people. Well, she used to work within Rustic Soul too and explaining to the clients different features and timber. Yeah. Doolery rays with oak. She loved telling people about those yeah. ones. Yeah. It's lovely having a partner who appreciates what you're into, I guess. Yeah. And the same with me with her. She's um she's getting into farming and um working with bees and, and sheep. And there's so much to learn off your other half, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And she's yeah, just been great, as I'm sure Marina was with you in starting it up and 
without I mean you without yeah. your partner being there at the end of the day and, and bouncing ideas off and talking yeah. about different Oh you... I don't think I would have done it without Marina, to be honest. Yeah. And where it's real important for me is just it's very it's it can be very lonely, you know, and mm. you, you can second guess yourself at times. And if you're in that moment of weakness and your partner is there and gives you the tiniest bit of encouragement, that's what'll keep you going. Mm. So Yeah, massively. Yeah. It's good to have that support there. Yeah, very fortunate. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, definitely check out Lindsay and Dixon. Yeah, yeah. it's on the list. Well, yeah. before we leave, I'm going to do a little roadmap of lots of... A wood holiday, I suppose, like what <laughs> you've had. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if you're going to the West Coast, then you've got to go see Arthur Gilman. Right. He, um, yeah, he, he har- well, I shouldn't say harvest, he, um, he takes all the Rima and Tocha out of the rivers. Right, yeah. Up in Haast. Yeah. Lovely guy, and his son's just about to take it over, AJ. So it's cool seeing that lineage of sawmillers getting sort of passed on, because it is an old boys game. I mean, I've, you know, the youngest sawmiller I know is, is definitely myself, but the next one's probably 50 years old, you know, and yeah, um, right. not many people doing it. So it's great to see AJ taking it on. Yeah. And continuing that source of native timber, which is rare, and doing it in a way that's sustainable. You know, taking all the yeah. toucher from the from the rivers that was is just going to be washed out to sea. Yeah. Um, that's brilliant. Why not use it? Yeah. It's beautiful yeah. timber as well. Mm. Yeah, and the knowledge is another thing. Like, you, you spend a year learning. You're always learning Mm-mm. every day. And all that knowledge you have, it would be such a shame to waste it, you know? Yeah. It's great to see it passed down. Yeah. So, yeah. I think Arthur hates it when I turn up at his, at his mill. <laughs> Take three hours out of his life just asking him so many questions. He's a wealth of knowledge, is he? Oh, yeah. just with reading timber, reading logs, knowing the best way to mill timber and how to extract the best grade of timber from logs. Oh, yeah, incredible! Yeah. yeah, and all through trial and error because there's no book on it. Yeah, you know. We're in your new premises here that yeah you've recently moved into, and it's an awesome spot. Um, yeah. So yeah, you've got new premise. It's a new year. Um, yeah. What's on the horizon? <laughs> I guess I've got to sell some of this timber. No. <laughs> I think it's got to a point now where I've, you know, I haven't got any more space to store it. Um, You've been saying that for a couple uh, of years. I have, and I keep finding space, I guess. <laughs> now, I, I, need a, I need to push it into the next step of, um, of doing that finer end of, of woodworking. Yeah. And that does need a, a shed or a space where I can work indoors, which I don't have at the moment. It's all fairly outdoors and... Um, haphazard I guess you'd say but um, yeah speaking to Don who I mentioned earlier who owns the land he's um, quite keen to let me build a shed and where I can tick away on sanding these slabs and and dressing them and oiling them and turning them into a finished product so I guess I'd like to say by the end of this year um, I'll have that shed and and be yeah turning these these bits of timber into um, actual final pieces well yeah I think um, I think that's where I want to be yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, but we'll see. Yeah, whether that will be with an employee or not, I'm I'm not sure. I yeah. do like doing it all myself, um, and I worry that, um, yeah, I wouldn't have the work for him every day. So yeah. to find someone, someone like Lex would be great. You know, if I could give her three days a week. Yeah. You know, to tick away and yeah, help. Well, that's how I started with Alfred's. He was sort of recovering from injury, so he wasn't mm. really ready for full-time work, and I wasn't really ready for a full-time employee. And you just find ways, and a lot of our thing at the start was bartering and stuff like that. Mm. You just find a, a thing that works for two people. Mm. It just comes from having the arms of people. Yeah. There might be lots of people. Like when I started my business very first, I was working as a builder, and I did three days a week building, three days a week furniture. And yeah, I found these deals with different people. You'll just find a way to make it work. Yeah. There's loads of options there. 
and the right person, I guess, as well. Yeah. Someone who cares what they're doing, I guess. Yeah, and to manage the social media aspect of it as well, which I'm terrible at, and I, you know, Tess, my partner, helps me out quite a bit too. I wouldn't say she's tech savvy at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think together we both. Well, I certainly struggle way more. She's helped out quite a lot on the post, but it's not her natural calling. Uh, you know, she's definitely more of an outdoorsy kind of yeah girl that um, yeah just doesn't have the nous or the the right. Um, way to sort of field content yeah. I guess you'll put it uh, yeah and being onto it on a daily or every other day just putting something out there because my phone is littered with all these photos of slabs and jobs and you know some really cool stuff that we do extracting timber from all sorts of weird places yeah um, it'd be great to showcase that yeah, yeah. I should yeah. I feel like I'm going to do it one day it'll be like 50 posts in a day <laughs> <laughs> but I've been told that's not how you do it yeah <laughs> Marina got quite good I'm not good at that stuff either but she got quite good at making a schedule Like, so she would sit down for two hours on a Saturday mm. and she'd create six posts and they go out at a certain time one every day and that's and a they, smart way of doing it yeah the software just done it you know made the post at that time for her oh you can program the yeah the computer to do that so she didn't have oh. to sit down at three o'clock every day and do a post oh interesting yeah because yeah, that's where I struggle you get to the end of a hard day's work and you're like oh the last thing I want to do is yeah and they say it has to be regular and it has to be consistent at the same time yeah it just doesn't work when you're if you're halfway up a tree or something, you know. Yeah, totally. And did you find that the numbers were sort of testimony to that? Like, did you see the the posts go or the views going up and the likes and all that? Um, yeah, I, it's it's got loads of benefits. Yeah, it definitely attracted a lot of new customers. Definitely mm. from all the social media work. Um, and a lot of people were bought into what we were doing. You mm. know, it's the same way you go out all around the country having yarns of people. Mm. We're just sharing our story on a different medium. Um, right. But the thing I really like about it is it's it's my little CV or my catalogue of my progression and mm. Rustic Souls progression. Mm. You look back and you see where we started and you see our progress and how it's evolved and got better and better mm-hmm. and better. Mm. It's cool to have a catalogue of that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, if nothing else. Yeah, because I'm used to taking photos and you realise life goes by pretty quick. Yeah. Sometimes you look back and you're like, I didn't take any photos of that trip we did skiing. Or yeah, but you're enjoying so, the moment too. Yeah, true, know? true. That's, that's important yeah. as well. Yeah. So will you take Rustic Souls back to Ireland? You're going to use that brand? as? Uh, yeah, it won't be called Rustic Soul. Um, you're not? Because we were sort of in the middle of rebranding here before um, I shut it down. Can you release the name? Is that... Um, um, I suppose I don't know I don't really know oh you don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't really don't know how that works to be honest yeah. but yeah I kind of love the name but um, I had a guy help me with marketing and stuff and he's just said it sends mixed messages with the word rustic you know um, and a lot of people then didn't understand soul or my uh, my pronunciation of it <laughs> like Kiwis didn't get it here so it wasn't catching people on that first um, yeah we were making a lot of fi- fine uh, high end furniture fine furniture and the word rustic made Maybe confuses people a little bit. Um, yeah, it's a hard one because it's more a testimony to your character rather than to the work you pumping yeah. out. You know, it's a uh, yeah. It meant a lot to me at the time. It was a very rustic setup when I started. I was starting out in a shed with no light. You know. Yeah. Um, and soul was just uh, what I put into it. You know. Mm. That's what I represented. But yeah. Mm. Um, we're thinking about different names and rebranding and starting a whole new business model when we go to Ireland so mm, mm. learn from a lot of the mistakes I've made here and mm. hopefully it's a more uh, streamlined smaller but more creative yeah mm. thing and you think you'll have an employee there or a couple of guys or depends we'll see depends mm. we'll have to see how it goes um, I want to keep it small and simple if yeah. possible yeah but you always need help um be cool if we had a local there's a guy living next door who was only 
I don't know what age he was when I left. He was only a kid anyway, but now he's actually a woodwork teacher and he's real passionate about woodworking. He's oh, my next kidding. neighbor. And he's excited for me to come home. Yeah, I bet he is. So me and him could collab on some things, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Oh, that's exciting now. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. new. Can't wait to get it going. Yeah. yeah. Especially having the right premise. Yeah. Space is so important in this industry. Yeah. That's the foundations, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got the space to do what you want, then you're sort of halfway there, I guess. Down, yeah. down to you and a security as well mm. I suppose oh, yeah. I look forward to seeing it yeah well hey let's wrap it up that's been brilliant you too Noel thanks thank man. you for this mate appreciate <laughs> it go down to the water and wash those cats away slow down today go down to the water and wash those cats away